As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let us read it together. All people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, would you change us from the inside out? Would you make us to be more like Jesus this morning? Help us to see him resurrected, reigning at your right hand. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A regular experience in the Clark household will be my son Harrison, who I've already, I've already mentioned. Uh, my son Harrison, who's two, he will regularly be running around, and sometimes uh, other kids are chasing him. And, uh, and, and they're having a good time, but often uh, when Harrison feels somehow um, scared or maybe he feels um, something's not right, he will run to me. And he'll run behind me. He'll hide himself behind me. It's a very simple idea, this notion of hiding. But how many of you kids, maybe you play hide-and-seek? But, but the idea that Harrison, of, of him coming up behind me, or if I'm sitting down, he, he, get, he comes up near me, and the whole idea is simply to be safe. Now kids, I want you to hear that, because this morning, the, the psalmist, we're going to be in Psalm 71, it's on page 499 of your pew Bible, if you want to follow along, in Psalm 71, the psalmist speaks of God as a hiding place. A hiding place is somewhere to somewhere to which we can run and have safety, safety from some sort of danger. And this morning, the, the, the danger that presents itself in the psalm is, is hostil, the hostility of others, is people, other people being mean to the psalmist. And he says it right here in verse 1 of Psalm 70, 71. He says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. He's saying, I have run to you like a child to its father. I have run to you. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. And the question is, what, what is he taking refuge from? What's the danger that he sees in his life? He gives it right in the next line, the second half of verse 1. He says, let me, let me never be put to shame. Let me never be put to shame. We could say it this way. He says, oh God, hide me from those who hate me. Hide me from those who hate shame. What is shame? Shame is that feeling that you get that you're just never really enough. That in the eyes of others, you are small. In fact, you're not just small, you're probably uh, a problem in some way. Uh, I, there was a number of months ago I was preaching on a, a similar psalm, and I, I shared a, an illustration that I, I think I've never gotten so much feedback. In fact, weeks later, actually, people come up to me and say, I remember that story. And that's so interesting how, what, 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 I was, it was always, to me it's always interesting how people remember certain things. I always wonder what sticks and what doesn't. But it was a story about a boy. Do you remember this story about a boy named Marshall? 
Yeah, I can see, I'm just amazed, the head, the head's nodding here. It's a, his name was Marshall, and Marshall was my second grade class. And you know how it is, kids, I, I don't know, it was in my day, when we, would, when we had recess, we would go out, we'd run out the door, and we would go play basketball or some sort of sport, and that always required picking teams. And Marshall was the kind of kid who waited and would wait and wait and often never get picked. And when he did get picked, other kids on his, his, his team would often groan, oh great, we have Marshall on our team. Or Marshall would make a mistake and people would yell at him, hey, stay, you know, you're such a loser, get it together, you're so messed up. And I'll never, never forget, it was actually one particular situation in which he had, uh, he, he had, I think he was playing the goalie or something like that, and the other team scored on him. And one of his teammates said, Marshall, all you do is make things worse. You're such a loser. And I'll never forget what Marshall did next. He screamed, I know, I know, I messed up. He didn't say, I messed up. He said, I messed up. He says, I always, I always mess everything up. And he hit himself. Hit himself, in the, just hit himself in the head really hard and walked away crying. How do you think Marshall felt, kids? What was, he, what was going on? He was sad, lonely, angry, maybe angry at himself, maybe angry at others. See, there's a name for that. All that Marshall's experienced is a name for that. It's called shame. It's called shame. It's this feeling, this aching feeling that we just don't fit in. And maybe it's passive. Maybe it's something that we just sort of pick up on. Most of life is like that. I mean, you just sort of sense that, hey, maybe you don't really belong. Sometimes it's in your face. Um, one of my daughters is playing soccer right now, and there was a, there was a soccer game that they were at, and uh, she, was, uh, she was on the bench, and, and the other kids on the bench, they were losing, they were, they were down a lot. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a, you know, it was a sort of a disaster, if you will, and so, uh, and it's raining out, and it's just a miserable time. But you could see that the girls on the bench, as they were losing, getting more and more frustrated, until finally, literally, they were yelling at their classmates. Yeah, at their teammates, basically saying, hey, get it together. And it's not, it's, these aren't comments of like cheering. It's not comments of, of advocacy. These are, these are uh, I mean, basically yelling at them and shaming them right in, the, right in front of everybody. So sometimes it's past, and I'm just active. We want to see that here in the psalm. But what I want you to see, though, is this notion of shame and how powerful it is and how it's the psalmist who is saying, Excuse me, it's a psalmist who's saying, Hide me. Hide me, O Lord, from those who hate me. Now, where do we see this here? First, he says, this is, we've seen verse 1 here. And where, where, is it, where are the people who hate him? For example, in verse 4, it says, Deliver me, deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. And then in verses 10 and 11, it says, For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say, God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. 
See that? So this is an in-your-face. They are after this guy. And he's saying, God, hide me from those who hate me. So again, when we use the word hate, I mean, the idea of shame. The idea of, listen, I mean, that's classically, that's what hate is. Hate, at least in Greek and Hebrew, hate is this idea of looking at someone and believing that they have very little worth. And that can be an active aggression, yelling, screaming, or it can just be all out ignoring someone. Right? You just sort of, you pretend like they don't even exist. You give them the silent treatment. Those are all forms of hatred. In fact, just as we see, as we saw in those verses, this in-your-face conspiring to kill, there's also this passive form of hating. Look in verse, uh, in verse 7. He says this. He says, I have become a sign to many. What does that mean? I've become a sign. Other, other translations say, I have become like a portent to many. In other words, I become, everyone kind of looks at me and realizes, man, I'm going to avoid that person. And often that happens. And when we are being, when we, have, when, when, someone, when we are in a situation in which we are being wronged, in which people are making accusations at us, often what's most difficult is not the people who are actually, you know, making the accusations, the people who are actually being directly mean. It's often the people who are our friends, supposedly our friends, who end up saying nothing. Everyone just kind of steps aside, gets out of the way, because they don't want to become involved in it. In fact, uh, if you look in, um, in, in Martin Luther King fa- Jr. famously said this, he said, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Can you relate to that? You ever had times where you have been just maybe, maybe slandered at work, made fun of at school, Something has happened. You're under fire, taking hits. People don't like you. And the people that you thought were your friends are silent. They're not saying a thing. They're like just, just sort of staying away. They don't want to get near, get, you know, get any of, of the shame on them. They don't want to like any of the friendly fire. They don't want to have, be anywhere near. And they're not going to say anything. They're just sort of sit back and see how it all plays out. What we remember no, most is not the, the, the hatred of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And so again, he is saying here, hide me, O God, from those who hate me. And, and it's the shame that's just sticking to him that he can't seem to get rid of. And this is why I, I want, this is very important to me before you don't understand this morning. People hated Jesus. Isn't that a strange thing? That just, did you, let me ask this. I mean, this is a really important question. Have you ever hated Jesus? I think that's a strong word. But have you ever, like, you ever said, you know, have you ever look, read the scriptures, read something that Jesus said and said, you've got to be kidding me? Because if you haven't, I don't think you're really, really following Jesus. There are things that Jesus says that are so very difficult. They're so, let me put it this way, that just seems so unrealistic, so black and white, so just demanding. For example, let me just give you a few examples. Turn to the right if you turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 
chapter 14, verse, uh, verse 25. So that is on page uh, 898 of your pew Bible. Listen to what Jesus says here. Large crowds were traveling. Again, this is page 898, uh, verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Isn't that crazy? What is he saying here? By the word hate, he's not saying animosity. He's saying you must think lesser of them than me. Like Jesus is saying, you know, in the ancient world, this was just mind-boggling. The family was everything. And he's saying, I come first. In fact, your real family is this family right here. And you're like, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? So if we really are, really are going to be his disciple, it means that our spouse doesn't have the final word, that our parents don't have the final word, that our children don't have the final word. That when we have to choose between I'm my spouse and Jesus, between my children and Jesus, between the activities of my children and Jesus, the sports, the music, the, whatever, the Boy Scouts, whatever it is, Jesus says, I'm first. And we don't, we don't like that. No, that's just kind of nice. Jesus is saying here, He's saying, you can only be my disciple if you do this. So first, Jesus makes demands about family here. And of course, in the next verse about society, look at verse 27. And whoever does not, carry their, does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There is the notion of a cross, the idea of rejection. It's the idea of being rejected by society. So Jesus is saying, one, I'm above family, I'm above, I'm above society. Look at this, it gets even worse. Look at verse, verses 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Again, what's he saying? Speaking of money, he's saying, listen, all that you have is mine. Everything that you have, your money, your resources, your assets, etc., it all belongs to me, and you have to use it like I say. That's just ridiculous. So family, society, money. Let me mention one more thing. Mercy. Turn to the right here. Um, yeah, to chapter um, 19 of Luke. It's on page 902. We see the story of Zacchaeus. So again, Jesus making these demands that he becomes hated. People do not like him because of the, the, the sheer arrogance, if you will, the, 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 just the, the nerve uh, of the demands that he makes. And they, that's why they hated him. In chapter 19, verse 1, we see this uh, story of Zacchaeus. It's a famous story about the ta- Zacchaeus as a tax collector. And we read in verse, um, verse 5, it says, When Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this. And they began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. See, Jesus was too merciful. People didn't like Jesus because he was showing mercy to the wrong people. There are some people you just don't show mercy to. They're just lost causes. 
or they've, they've sinned too much. They've wronged too many times. They're too, they're too stubborn. They're too lost. You just don't do that. You don't save those Republicans. You don't save those Democrats. You don't save those people. The people that we love to hate on. Right? And Jesus is hated because he shows mercy. He's hated for how he calls us to think about family, society, how he calls us to think about money, how he calls us to think about mercy. Those are just four ways. But I'm, I'm very sincere here that if, if, if you don't at times struggle greatly with the demands that Jesus makes, I'm not sure that we're really following him. It's a very important thing to do. Just recently, I shared this on Friday night, I want to share it again. Very, uh, recently, a pastor friend of mine had a congregant come up to him and said, uh, he said, I want to confess something. He said, I, pretty much my whole life as a Christian, he says, I've only really obeyed those laws that make sense to me. Like, if it's in Scripture, I'm interested, and I'm going to do it if it makes sense. But if some of those laws, if some of the Jesus commands, whoever it is, it just seems dumb, I'm not going to bother. He said, that was my modus operandi. That's how I live my life. And then he says, several years ago, I decided to start tithing. Because I was like, tithing was dumb. Why bother, why bother tithing? He said, I started tithing. Just because I thought, I'm just going to do this. And he said, he said to my, my pastor friend, he said, listen, I had no idea that I needed that so much in my life. And again, so this is not about tithing. This is about looking at the commands of Jesus and saying, I just, I don't, I'm not interested. That's dumb. It's too, too costly. Jesus is making demands that were so costly, that's going to cost me my parents' opinions of me. It's going to cost me my inheritance. It's going to cost me my children not liking me. It's going to cost all of these things. And the cost of following Jesus were so great that people said, no way, you're done. You are out of here. And so again, the psalmist is saying, hide me from all who hate me. And then he says, I love this, it's so beautiful. He says, hide me from all who hate me. Turn back to Psalm 71, he's back on page 499. <clears throat> I love this, it's so, so beautiful. He speaks of his life. He says, hide me from all who hate me as you have done my whole life. Look at, the, look at verse, verses 5 and following. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. Isn't that beautiful? I love how he speaks of just the lifelong reliance upon the Lord. Verse 8, my mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. And then, he says, having looked back at his youth, he looks forward. Verse 9, do not cast me away when I am old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. You know, Shame works that way, especially as persons grow older. People often simply become ashamed of being old. I see it all the time in the hospital, when I do visitations regularly. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I regularly will run into people, old men, especially, uh, well, both, both men and women, older men and women who basically say, no one really wants me around anymore. They feel they've outlive their usefulness. 
And especially when we're, as a parent, let's say, when we're used to caring for our children, we're used to caring for this, and suddenly they're just, they're on their own now. And it's just, like, what, what, what am I here for? There's a loss, there's a sense, and he's saying, the psalmist is saying, hide me from all who hate me, and, and, and hide me my whole life. Don't, don't ever go away, especially as I grow older. So he says, hide me from all who hate me. And why? So I can hope. Look at verse 14. I love this. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. And then he continues in verse 15. My mouth will tell of all your righteous deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deeds, yours alone. Such a beautiful, he just celebrates and says, I have hope here. And then he returns to this notion, uh, this idea of, of looking over his whole life. Verse 17, since my youth, God, you have taught me. And to this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. You know, I'd say I can sit up here all day and I can preach at you and I can talk about God's word. It is so powerful when one of you, in your years, in your experience of life, can testify to the power of God. When you can, and this is one of the most beautiful ways that you can make an impact in life. It's simply, let's say you're in your 40s. Look around here and say, who's in their 30s or 20s? that I could just come alongside and just walk with them, testify to them. Maybe you're in your, your 60s, your 70s, you look back and you go, who in their 40s or 50s? Could I, who's here that I can go and I can say, yes, it is hard, but it is worth it. Yes, we almost gave up on our marriage, but we, 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 we stuck through it and now it's so worth it. But to give that actual testimony, to be able to say, I love this, how he says it, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. It's just so beautiful. When aged saints who have been through hell and back are able to stand and testify. To do so, not necessarily on a Sunday morning, it could be, but just any time you walk along with others and you say, yes, I too have endured that. It's a beautiful thing. So he says, hide me from all who hate me so I can hope. And where is his hope really, uh, where is it rooted? It's in God's holiness. Look at verse, verses 19 through 21. I love this, verse 19. Your righteousness, your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things who is like you, O God? Verse 20, though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter. What a statement. Isn't that one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture? Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. Such beautiful words. Basically, the notion of God's holiness that we talked about on Friday night is very simple. It's that, it's that God is other. He is outside the system, if you will. He's outside of this cosmos. He's not subject to time. He's not subject to space. He's not subject to any of those things. He has no constraints. And therefore, he can do whatever he pleases. And that is what's underlying the notion of the resurrection. When you look at the resurrection, I mean, that is the silliest thing to do. And it's not silly. If you have a God who has created all things, 
and sustains all things and can easily grant life whenever he desires. And that's the beauty, that's the freedom, that's the hope that the psalmist has in the midst of his shame. That when, when the world seems to misunderstand, when everyone thinks that he is in the wrong, he says, hide me from all who hate me, because I know that you're holy. I know that you can, you can, you can do, do the unexpected. You can undo the undoable. You can reverse the irreversible. And that's the hope that he has, that God will be holy and, do, and, and, and to act in ways that are irreversible. And so he concludes, this in the final verses here, 22, he concludes with a hallelujah to the one who will hold him fast. He says in verse 22, I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, my God. I will sing to you with the lyre, O holy one of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have delivered. Verse 24, my tongue will tell of all your righteous acts all day long, for those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. What a beautiful psalm. Listen, if you struggle with shame in your life, you are not alone. That is the norm. None of us feel like we fit in. We just, because we don't. In all kinds of ways. And if you want someone to walk with you in that, I would sure be, uh, uh, it would be a real privilege to do that. If you want to come and talk and Either whether it's just informally or make a formal appointment, whatever you would like. I, do, I want you to see the beauty here. That the psalmist is saying, look, this is, a, this is a part of, this is an experience that we all have. And there is hope in the one who is holy.